Our, our passage this uh, afternoon or this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5 will cover two sections, uh, one at a time. The first section is verses 1 to 16, and then in our second part, 17 to 25. In the first section, we'll cover how to deal with widows, how to deal with widows, and before that, how to deal with people who are older and yeah, younger than we are. So, 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed, and who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God, and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be put on the list only if she is not less than sixty years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, let her assist them, and let not the church be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you'll show us how indeed to take care of those among us, especially widows, those that are suffering the loss of their spouses and fathers. We pray that you'll help us to understand these truths, give us insight. And Father, may the things that we learn, though they may be new to our ears, not be so distasteful and detestable to us that we reject them. But give us humility and help us to understand what it means to faithfully obey you in caring for the ones that are needy around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In verses 1 and 2, he calls on Timothy, Timothy, a young pastor, how to deal with and how to confront the sins of others, such as older men older, uh, and younger men, older women, and younger women. He says in verse 1, Do not sharply rebuke an older man. When there is sin, and I believe here in dealing with personal sins and personal confrontations, personal private sins and, and transgressions that he notices, he ought to not approach the older man with a sharp rebuke. Instead, he should appeal to him as a father. It's improper for sons to approach the father, their father, brazenly and obstinately whenever they see something that they perceive being wrong or actually is wrong with their father. Instead, they should appeal they should plead with the Father. They should request and say, isn't it this way? Why are we saying this or why are you doing this? They should appeal to their fathers and not sharply rebuke them. And this is the way Timothy's supposed to be with the fathers, with the older men in his own assembly. With the younger men, he's supposed to deal with them as brothers. He's not supposed to lord it over his brothers. He's not supposed to there be severe and harsh with his brothers, but he's supposed to be kind and gentle and loving. He's supposed to love his brother as himself. 
As he would want to be treated by his brother, he should treat his own brother. For this is the law and the prophets, Matthew seven twelve. Jesus said. The same is true with the women in verse 2. The older women are to be treated as mothers, not disrespectfully, uh, not brazenly, not with uh, unnecessary words and anger and flare-ups, not like that, but they're supposed to be treated as proper, respect, respectable mothers. They're supposed to be treated in that way. Mothers deserve treatment too, respectable treatment. And the same with the younger women. The younger women are to be treated as sisters. They're supposed to be treated gently, kindly. They're supposed to be treated in those loving ways. It's not right and not good for a brother to mistreat his sister, right. to speak wrong words, violent words, and even commit violence against his sister, knowing that the sister is weaker. That is wrong for him to do so. He should treat her kindly and gently. Yet he must treat, he must treat her, even though she is weaker, even though she is a woman, he ought to deal with the younger women in the congregation accordingly. And then the reminder, in all purity. Because when a private sin, uh, a sin of a woman is committed, especially a younger woman, younger than the man, there is temptation. There is temptation on the part of the man, and there is temptation on the part of the woman, on the pastor and his parishioner, that there could be uh, the, the doing of or the potential of committing sin, the man and the woman together, committing sexual sin and any uh, things related to that. So he says, make sure you handle these things in all purity. Be circumspect. Make sure that there is no sin that proceeds in your confrontation of her sin. This is the way we ought to treat one another. In other words, he's teaching that we ought to honor our parents because the older men and women are to be treated as parents. So honor your father and mother, as it says in the Ten Commandments. And as well with the younger men and the younger women to love your neighbor as yourself. The closest neighbor we all have in our households uh, will be our own spouses and our own family, our own children. So we should love them as we love ourselves. Leviticus 19.18 You shall love your neighbor as yourself. As we would want them to treat us, we ought to treat them with kindness and with gentleness. Now, though he is saying this, about the older men and the, the older women, the younger men and the younger women. Though he is saying this, we need to keep in mind that he is not saying that there should be never any confrontation of sin and that there is no setting, no situation in which the people who are sinning ought to be reproved or rebuked. He's not eliminating that potential and that scenario. We know he's not doing that because... He says in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, in reference to the preaching ministry of Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says in verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. In his preaching ministry, he's supposed to be ready to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. This means that when we come to the preaching ministry, it ought not to be of a sort that is weak and feeble, that does not call out sin and does not call the people to attention to sin, sins that are being committed in our churches, sins that are being committed in our society. All of these kinds of things have to be openly discussed and openly confronted in the preaching and teaching ministry. Not only in that scenario is there supposed to be rebuke and confrontation, but in Titus chapter 1, he mentions another scenario. Titus chapter 1, Titus also is a pastor, elder, overseer, and also a young man. And he says in Titus chapter 1, verse 10. Actually, we'll begin just before that in verse 9. Titus is supposed to 
Hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. He's supposed to be capable of exhorting in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Exhortation includes encouragement and admonishment. Exhortation includes both encouragement and admonishment. And he's supposed to also refute those who contradict. When there are false teachers saying things that contradict and undermine the Bible, he's supposed to be able to exhort on those matters and even to refute, which refutation will inevitably come across to the unwilling hearer as being severe, as harsh, as unloving and unkind. But it's supposed to be not taken that way, not by the hearer, because the preacher and the the teacher is supposed to be able to refute. And he, he explains further, verse 10, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. When these false teachers are unwilling to listen, they won't repent. He says there in verse 13, For this cause, for this reason, reprove them severely. What's the purpose? That they may be sound in the faith. When there is a severe disease that needs to be excised from the body, then it's going to hurt the body. It's going to hurt the patient. But the doctor must do it. He must remove whatever malady he has there if it can be excised from the body. It's going to be severe. It's going to be harsh. But it's necessary. It is the loving and right thing to do. Let's move on. In 1 Timothy 5, now directly he treats widows. 1 Timothy 5 And verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed. This is the topic now through verse 16. The proper way to honor widows who are widows indeed. What does it mean to honor and who is an actual widow, a true, real widow, a widow indeed? How are we to honor them and who are the ones to be honored? He says in verse 4, what should first be done in the family for those widows. Verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. The children and the grandchildren of the widow are supposed to be the first ones in line to help their own widows. The family the relatives are supposed to be the first ones to help their own flesh and blood, their own widow, the widowed mother, widowed grandmother, however the connection. They should be the first ones to help them. And he says, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family. Practice piety, practice godliness, practice holiness, godliness in regard to their own family. It should first happen and then... He'll explain later who else is supposed to step in. But they're supposed to first help their own family and make some return to their parents. First, love their own family and make return to their parents. In Ephesians 5, the apostle has applied the second greatest commandment, which is implied here in 1 Timothy 5.4. The second greatest commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is applied in the marital relationship. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 and verse 28. 5.28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, 
because we are members of his body. If it is true that the husband ought to love his own wife as he loves himself, and since the two are one flesh, verse 31, for this cause the man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Since they are one flesh, whatever he does to his wife, he's doing to himself because they are one flesh. And in like manner, in 1 Timothy 5, when we first practice piety in regard to our own widows among our family, we're showing true love for our own flesh. We're showing true love for those who are our flesh and blood. This is what he expects the children and the grandchildren to do. Practice holiness, godliness, piety in regard to their own family. And after all, it should be the case that we make some return to our parents. Our parents are the ones who raised us up. Yes, they chose to have us, but they did invest in us. They did invest in us. They did pour their lives into us. And if we had godly parents, they promoted godliness in our own families. They've done that. So why wouldn't it be the case that once the children are old enough and independent and able with their own uh, maintenance and uh, income, be able to help their parents when the parents become like children, when they're unable to care for themselves, when they need to be held by the hand, taken to the door, in and out of places. When they are at that stage, why shouldn't it be obvious for, to all of us that we should do that? That's what he means, to make some return to their parents. And this is acceptable in the sight of God. This is what God is pleased to see. Remember, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. The scripture says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. So why not do that which is acceptable, pleasing, delightful in the sight of God? God knows, so be accountable to God himself. Verse 5, he moves on to explain what a godly widow does. A godly widow. Verse 5, now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. A widow indeed and he assumes here, we'll see later, he assumes that this widow indeed is one who has made a commitment, vow, promise to God that she's going to remain single and she's going to devote herself to spiritual things. She's going to pray. She's going to help others. She's going to serve the church. She's going to be active in godly activities. That's what she has committed to do. Because she's been left alone, she fixes her hope on God. Only God, ultimately, is going to provide for her, the Father in heaven. She, she has no husband who was supplying her needs. She has no husband who was there in her proximity helping her with her needs. Now she has to depend on God. She puts her hope on God, that God would be close to her, uh, help her in times of loneliness, supply her needs. And then she, in return, also prays constantly, continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. I, th I believe we have a perfect example of this godly widow in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 36. Luke 2, 36. This is Anna the prophetess. Luke 2, 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. And she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him, that is Christ, to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. She's the perfect example. She was married for only seven years and then remained a widow until age 84. And what did she do in the meantime? 
She served God night and day with fastings and prayers. And she was a speaker. She spoke to others about the coming of Christ and the redemption that's found in Christ. She was a preacher of the gospel. That's the widow who continues and, and practices godliness. But in contrast, 1 Timothy 5.6, in contrast, 1 Timothy 5.6, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. She who, in, instead of putting her hope in God and instead of praying, instead of serving the people of God, instead of proclaiming the gospel to people, she here in verse 6 is indulging her flesh. She's dead. She's living a dead life, a spiritually dead life, a wanton life, a careless life of pleasure and ease and comfort. She's indulging her flesh instead of putting to death the flesh and living for God. She might be alive physically, but she's dead spiritually. This is the way of a wanton widow. And these contrasts have to be made known. Why? Verse 7. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. Prescribe these things as well. He has also said in 4.11, Prescribe and teach these things. Verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 16, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation, both for yourself and for those who hear you. And even in verse 15, chapter 4, verse 15, Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress may be evident to all. He reminds Timothy that he has to prescribe, he has to teach, he has to pay close attention, he has to take pains with all this. He has to be constantly talking about these things. He has to be exercising his own mind and spiritual life and exercising the life of others, constantly preaching and teaching these things. He has to do so for, I believe, a couple of reasons. One is found in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. God does not give us fear of man. Fear of man comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. God gives us the fear of God. But fear of man comes from elsewhere. That's why he told Timothy, which is a common weakness and a common sin that we all have, we all have this fear of man. We're afraid if we speak so boldly like this, what are the people going to say? What are the people going to think? Especially what are the women going to think? We're afraid of what the women will say. But we should not be. Timothy should not be. The reason he tells him is he has timidity, and he's afraid of what the women will say. However, we have godly examples of the confrontation of women who sin. Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet. Timothy and all of us, we ought to do as Isaiah the prophet did. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 16. Isaiah three, sixteen. He confronts the sin of these women. 3.16 Moreover, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are proud, and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes, and go along with mincing steps, and tinkle the bangles on their feet, therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of, belt, of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty, 
Your men will fall by the sword, and your mighty ones in battle, and her gates will lament and mourn, and deserted she will sit on the ground. Chapter 4, verse 1. For seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. They were indulging in these pleasures with all of their cosmetics and jewelry. They were indulging in these things and not in godliness. They were not pursuing godliness. God's going to take all this away from them. He's going to make them so desperate that they're going to have a reproach on them. They're going to be ones that are not uh, viewed as honorable women by the people all around them. And in chapter 4, verse 1, because they can't even find a man to get married. What's wrong with you? You can't find a man to get married? They're going to be so desperate that seven of them will approach one man and say, listen, we all want to get married and we'll take care of our own maintenance. You don't have to worry about it. We'll take care of our own bread and our, and our own clothes. We just want to be called by your name. Take away our reproach. He's going to make them that desperate because of their sin. Jeremiah does the same. Jeremiah chapter 44. Jeremiah 44. The people were practicing idolatry. They wanted to go into the land of Egypt, and Jeremiah told them not to do that. He told them to quit worshiping idols, and they refused to do it. Notice in Jeremiah 44, 15. 44, 15. Then all the men who were aware that their wives were burning sacrifices to other gods along with all the women who were standing by as a large assembly, including all the people who were living in Pathros, in the land of Egypt, responded to Jeremiah, saying, As for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. But rather, we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out libations to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings, and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food, and we were well off, and we saw no misfortune. But since we stopped burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out libations to her, we have lacked everything and have met our end by the sword and by famine. And, verse 19, And said the women, When we were burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out libations to her, was it without our husbands that we made for her sacrificial cakes in her image and poured out libations to her? See how obstinate they are? And their husbands, the men, are not stopping the sin of their wives? And the wives are speaking up and confronting Jeremiah disrespectfully? Verse 20, Then Jeremiah said to all the people, to the men and women, even to all the people who were giving him such an answer, saying, As for the smoking sacrifices that you burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your forefathers, your kings and your princes, and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them, and did not all this come into his mind? So the Lord was no longer able to endure it because of the evil of your deeds, because of the abominations which you have committed. Thus your land has become a ruin, an object of horror, and a curse without an inhabitant, as it is this day. Because you have burned sacrifices and have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed the voice of the Lord or walked in His law, His statutes, or His testimonies, therefore this calamity has befallen you as it is, as it has this day. Then Jeremiah said to all the people, including all the women, Hear the word of the Lord, all Judah, who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as follows, As for you and your wives, you have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled it with your hands, saying, We will certainly perform our vows that we have vowed to burn sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pour out libations to her. Go ahead and confirm your vows and certainly perform your vows. Nevertheless, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who are living in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, never shall my name be invoked again by the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, As the Lord God lives. Behold, I am watching over them for harm and not for good. And all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt will meet their end by the sword and by famine until they are completely gone. And he continues with the judgment oracle. Timothy is supposed to be like that. He's supposed to see that even if it's the sin of the women, 
it has to be confronted. And even the men have to be told that they are culpable and guilty for allowing their women, their wives, to behave in sinful ways. He confronts them all. He doesn't back off. or They both don't back off, Isaiah and Jeremiah. And Timothy's supposed to do the same. And very briefly, we are aware of Luke 10 when Mary and Martha were, were entertaining Jesus. Mary was listening to the Lord's word, but Martha was bothered with all the household duties and the arrangements, and she accused Jesus of not caring. Right. She accused Jesus basically of sinning by not having a caring, loving heart towards the circumstance between Martha and Mary. And Jesus even confronted her. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. When only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. So here, J Jesus also confronted her. And this is all necessary, again, because he says in 1 Timothy 5, verse 7, so that they may be above reproach. They may be, if they are above reproach, then the name of Christ that they bear will be above reproach. If they're not above reproach, the name of Christ won't be above reproach. It's necessary in the church to keep the name of Christ untainted, unstained by sin, so that it can be a testimony, an honorable testimony to the outside world, which he said in 1 Timothy 3, 7, and he, the elder, must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And also in Titus, Titus chapter 2. Everyone here, and in this passage he's addressing the young men, and he says that they ought to live a godly life. In Titus 2 verse 8, they should be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. The testimony of the church, the men and the women, old and young, it all has a bearing on the rest of the world and the preaching and reception of the gospel out there in the world. This is why it's necessary. Returning to 1 Timothy 5 and now at verse 8, he says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Whoever does not conduct himself this way in providing for his own mother yeah. or grandmother, <clears throat> widowed, whoever does not do so, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is a non-negotiable doctrine. This is an essential doctrine. This is in the list of those doctrines that must be believed and practiced. And if it's not practiced, then we have denied the faith and we are worse than unbelievers. We can't say this is a secondary or tertiary doctrine. It's a primary doctrine. If we don't do this, we deny the faith and we're worse than unbelievers. The unbelievers, generally speaking, they know to take care of their own. Sure. The fathers and the mothers, they go to, to, to work, they make the food, they prepare the food, they raise their children, they provide their clothing, they provide their housing, they do that. They know to do that. And then when they have widowed uh, women in their midst, they take care of them. Generally speaking, they do so. They do so. Now, if the unbeliever, and if it were just one or two or ten unbelievers knew how to do that, why can't the believer understand that he's supposed to do that? Somebody who says he believes in Christ. Why does he not understand? That's the point Paul makes in verse 8. That we are worse than unbelievers if we know the right thing because we have the Word of God. We have the revelation of God and we claim to have the name of Christ and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. If we have all these benefits, why don't we get it? We should get it in contrast to the unbelieving world. We can't let the unbelieving world behave in more godly ways than the one who says he belongs to God. It can't be the case. It's a contradiction. So, so far we have seen what the families are supposed to do for their own widows. We haven't reached the church yet. What is now the church supposed to do? And in what situation? What are the parameters for the church? Verse 9. 
Let a widow be put on the list. Put on the list, the church list, he means. The church list. Only if she is not less than 60 years old. Age requirement there. If she is not less than 60 years old, there's one requirement, age. The wife of one man. Meaning, faithfulness and dedication, godliness towards the one man. Has she lived a life of faithfulness like this? Verse 10, having a reputation for good works. Is she known for doing good works, for helping one another, caring for one another? Is she known for that, for good works? If she has brought up children, has she raised children? Or did she despise children in her youth so that she didn't have any children? Of course, this is not talking about barrenness, infertility. It's talking about whether the woman had the ability to raise children, but rejected that ability to raise children. Has she brought up children, and therefore godly children? Has she brought up godly children? How are they behaving? If she has shown hospitality to strangers. When there are Christian ministers especially, going from town to town preaching the gospel, is she one of the ones that, who's willing to, to say, Oh, I'll help. Let me help with this task or that task. In, in helping the strangers who are in our midst. Does she do so? Ha, if she has assisted those in, uh, excuse me, if she has washed the saints' feet, has she been a servant in washing and doing even the menial tasks around that need to be done? If, has she assisted those in distress? Those who c- come across calamities, emergencies, and accidents, unexpected incidents, when they come across that, they're in distress, but does she have a callous attitude towards them? Is she callous Alice? And this just walks down the road? Or will she actually help? She sees, oh, that person's really in need. Somebody needs to help. Let's help. The, the, The one in distress. If she has devoted herself to every good work. Is she dedicated, devoted to doing the will of God, whatever is good, in the realm that she finds herself, in whatever atmosphere, whatever environment of doing good work, is she willing and able to do so? Does she do so? These are the requirements to put a widow on the list to receive church help. Verse 11. But refuse to put younger widows on the list. Refuse to put younger widows on the list. This refusal is partly Timothy's obligation, but it's going to come because he's going to hear clamoring voices say, she's a widow, let's put her on the list. She asked for help, we need to help her. He's saying, refuse to do that. You have to be ready to say, no, no thanks. Or let's see what the Bible says about that issue. And then we'll we'll proceed accordingly. Refuse to put younger widows on the list. Why? For when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge or their first faith, their first uh, trust, uh, first pledge. What they first said that they would do, they have now broken that promise or that vow. They first said, I'm going to remain a young widow, and I'm going to remain a widow until the rest of my life. I'm not going to get married again. That's what they said. But when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married. They said, Christ is my husband. Christ is my Lord, and I'm just going to follow Him, and He's all I need. They make this rash vow. But then they want to break it because they have these sensual desires, and they want to get married. Now, the desires themselves are not wrong, but they pretended that they could overcome them and not want to get married. Now, those desires have overcome them, and they want to get married. They disregard Christ, the promise they made to Him, and then because they set aside this previous pledge, they incur condemnation. They incur condemnation. Now, that's a strong word. Are they really condemned? I believe so. I believe they are really condemned, not just in God's uh, realm of displeasure, 
but really they are condemned. They are condemned. Why? Because they broke their vow. They want to, they have the sensual desires that overcome them. They disregard Christ. And also verse 13. What is characteristic of these younger widows? Verse 13. What are they practicing? Characteristic of them. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle. As they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. They learn to be idle, which means they didn't do that initially, but they learned to do it. So it's happening in stages gradually. There's some time that transpires. They have a characteristic about them. They learn to be idle. They go around from house to house. One house to another house, which takes time. It doesn't happen just once. It, it's a practice, going around from house to house. And not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. They are gossipers. They love to share sensational news. They love to share private and sensational news. They love to say, hey, did you hear? Hey, did you know? And they love to talk about people's personal dealings and conflicts that they have. They love to do that kind of thing. That's what a gossip does. And a busybody, pretending to be busy. The irony of this English word, busybody, is they're not really busy, they pretend to be busy. They're not busy doing good, they pretend to be busy doing good. And so they are busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. They're practicing this. It is characteristic of them. They are habitually doing this. So this is why when they do this, and then they have these sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they break their vow of singleness, they break it. All of this is characteristic that they're not really believers. That's why they receive condemnation. What then is the solution? What should be done with younger widows? Verse 14. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. When he says, I want younger widows, he's not speaking of his personal preference or a cultural preference or even his sinful human wisdom. The Apostle Paul, when he says, I want, he does not mean that he only is giving his mere opinion or preference. He's speaking as an apostle. Remember, 1 Timothy 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. He's speaking as an apostle. Verse 12, 1 Timothy 1, 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Christ put him into service. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. And for this, this ministry of the gospel, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He is speaking as an apostle when he says, I want. Also, verse 8, 1 Timothy 2, 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Verse 9, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. You see, the phrase is there in verse 8, I want the men. And then it's in verse 9, I want the Women. Well, if I want, in 1 Timothy 5.14, is his mere human opinion, cultural, then that means it's cultural for men to pray. In verse 8, 1 Timothy 2.8, it would be cultural, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. Then we can just pray because it's cultural. One culture believes in prayer, another culture does not believe in prayer. That's ridiculous. And same with verse 9. It would also be ridiculous to say women in one culture can be modest, but they don't have to be modest in other cultures. 
Modesty is relative. It just depends from culture to culture. That's absurd. Especially because of verse 10, 1 Timothy 2.10. He says, women make a claim to godliness by means of good works. That's universal. That, that applies in every culture. So, when he says, I want younger widows to get married, he's speaking as an authoritative apostle of Christ, according to the commandment of God. And he's speaking about all cultures. He's speaking universally. We all ought to do this. What is it? Verse 14, younger widows should get married. Don't assume a rash vow. Don't make false vows. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5, 1-5 explains that. Don't make false vows. As well, James chapter 5, James chapter 5 and, and verse 12. James 5, 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or, by, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Don't make these rash false vows vows. Instead, get married, which is proper. In Genesis 1 and 2, God established marriage. In Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, God reestablished marriage and the bearing of children. In Psalms 112 and 13, Psalms 127 and 128, God reiterates marriage. He emphasizes marriage and the blessing of bearing children. This is throughout the scripture. It's right here as well. It's also a matter of the, of the woman of the house, the wife and the mother. It's also upon her, incumbent upon her to keep house. To keep house. Take care of the house. Make sure it is orderly. Make sure that it is homely. Conducive to the families who have to go out and about and come home in order for them to have peace of mind, relaxation, Food, everything should be in order. This is repeated in Titus. Titus chapter 2. Titus 2 verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. This should characterize a woman making a claim to godliness, a woman who says that she's a Christian. Be married, bear children, keep house. These are her fundamental basic duties. Should not be ignored. And the reason again, give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Don't let the enemy, the opponents of the gospel, malign us because we are hypocrites, because we say one thing and do another. Don't let them practice this um, slander toward us and the name of Christ, because they see that there is dissonance and disharmony in our own families. They should see wholesome families, and they should give honor to God because of the way we live as we bear the name of Christ. And again, verse 15 how important is it to practice these things? How essential? Is this negotiable or not? Is this cultural or not? Is this a preference or not? Verse 15, For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Whoever detracts from this, whoever goes off the beaten path, the straight path, the way of righteousness, the narrow path that Jesus proclaimed, whoever goes off this path is following Satan. They turn aside. They go away from the truth. They go away into myths. As he says in 2 Timothy 4, 4, they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. To turn aside to myths is to follow the myths of Satan. Not the truth of God, but the myths of the devil. He's saying... If we don't do this, we're actually following Satan. Therefore, this is non-negotiable. We should expect this. It is obligatory for all of us to believe this and to tell others about this. And verse 16. 
If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, let her assist them and let not the church be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. It may be, since he addresses the woman here in verse 16, if any woman who is a believer, any believing woman, if she has dependent widows, let her also, assuming she has means, assist them and let not the church be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. In order for us not to think that only the men are responsible, because one could assume that, according to 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his own, his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul did not mean that it's exclusive to men. It is their duty. But even if there is a woman who has means, she should help her dependent widows. She should help the widows in her own family. She should assist them. And the church should not be burdened, not yet, to assist them, so that the church may assist the widows indeed. Those who fit this description of support from the church, these are the ones that should be supported. And one more comment on this. A perfect example of a widow who worked hard, who was a young widow, and then got married, and did not receive help from anybody else, right. was Ruth. In the book of Ruth, remember, Ruth was a foreigner. She was a Moabitess. She came back to the land of Judah. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, sent her out to work in the field, according to Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, that the alien and the sojourner, the orphans and the widows, the poor, are supposed to go out into the field and glean in the field for their own food, for their own livelihood. They're supposed to work. Ruth was not sitting in an office. Ruth was not begging for people to come visit her and provide for her at her own house. She went out into the field. When I said the office, what I meant was she did not go to a, a village office or the local uh, city office or the governmental office and say, I'm poor, I'm a foreigner, and I insist that you send me a check in the mail. Have it direct deposited into my bank account. She did not say any of that. And certainly those things could have existed. There are authoritarians and totalitarians in all ages of, of history. They could have done that. And Ruth could have asked for that. But she didn't. She worked in the field. And she was a young widow. So what did she do? In due time... Her godliness was discovered by Boaz. Boaz had the means to marry her. Boaz married her. Then they raised children by the end of the book, Ruth chapter 4. She had children, and she raised them. She worked hard, did not depend on others. She provided for her own needs and for the needs of her mother-in-law, and then she married in due time because she was still young enough to remarry. That's the example that we have in the Bible, a perfect example of employing this principle of 1 Timothy chapter 5. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says.